Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting virtual panel discussion. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois and the technical director of the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our eighth webinar of 2021, and the remaining six for 2021 have already been scheduled, and the next webinar will be shown on the second to last screen today. During today's webinar, we really welcome questions and comments for our panelists, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. Viewers in the Tokyo and Riyadh time zones, please submit your questions during the presentation or the follow-up survey that you will receive after the presentation, and we will answer your questions during the follow-up podcast. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation and panel discussion, and our speakers will address them as part of the discussion today. The recording of this webinar will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Today, we have four distinguished panelists to answer questions about CQC, and CQA procedures related to the installation of fabricated geomembranes and geosynthetics. So I'll introduce each panelist and they will present a few slides on their perspective of CQC and CQA procedures. Afterwards, the panelists will start answering your questions that you've submitted through the questions box. So our first panelist is Brian Queen. Brian is a lead environmental specialist with the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency and a member of the George or Geotechnical Resource Group at the Ohio EPA. The George Group has created, I think, the leading guidance document on geotechnical and stability analyses for Ohio containment facilities, as well as others. And it's a comprehensive and innovative guideline. So Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Mm -hmm. Our next panelist is Shannon Goodrich, president of GoToCQA, which provides third-party CQA inspection services. He has over 32 years of geosynthetics construction quality assurance experience. And Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Our next panelist is Tanya Swatolsky. Tanya is the general manager of Titan Environmental Containment LTD in Houston, Texas. Titan is a major factory fabricator of geomembranes and geosynthetics in North America. Tanya will describe the importance of CQA testing on geomembrane welding and fabrication. Tanya, thank you for joining us. And our final panelist is Ryan Camp. Ryan is the president of Chesapeake Containment Systems, Inc., which is a geosynthetics installation company headquartered in Statesville, North Carolina. Ryan began his career in geosynthetics 23 years ago, starting as a laborer and progressing all the way through the ranks to start his own company, Chesapeake uh, Containment Systems. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Very and well. Ryan, yep, and Ryan started Chesapeake in 2007, and it's already built a great reputation for safety, quality, and value, and is one of the largest installation companies in the U.S. So I forgot to move the slides there. There's Shannon, and here's Tanya, and here's Ryan. Okay, so please submit your questions for the panelists via the question portal as we go through sort of an introduction to CQC and CQA. Before we get to CQC and CQA, I briefly wanted to touch on manufacturer quality control and quality assurance. This is performed during the manufacturing process of the geosynthetics. For example, MQC is performed by the manufacturer and they're looking at the resins, fibers, and additives and making sure they meet vendor certified values as well as the final or manufactured products meeting specified values. So that's MQC. MQA is consultant controlled, and there the consultant 
is verifying that certified values produced by the manufacturer meet project requirements. And this also could require a plant visit or visits to inspect the process and the products. Today, we are not going to talk about manufacturers and their quality control as well as quality assurance. Today, we are focused on construction quality control and construction quality assurance. So CQC, fabricator controlled, they, the idea is to confirm compliance with the plans and specs, conduct product conformance testing as part of CQC. So our first speaker on CQC is Tanya Swatowski. Tanya is going to discuss factory CQC. So Tanya, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so one of the reasons why you would want to um, to do factory QC is uh, on your seams is to prevent wind, dirt, rain, temperature, those kind of things affect your field seaming. Um, when you're in the plant, you're able to control your environment, um, which actually produces higher and more consistent um, shears and peels on your on your welds. Um, doing the same testing in the field, obviously, you're not going to be able to to maintain that high level of cleanliness and, and temperature control. Um, next slide. So the way that we do this is uh, we actually will do um, non-destructs. Can you advance the slide, Tim? Yeah. I, um, yeah. We will do non-destructs um, in the plant at the beginning of the shift and every four hours um, of production, whichever is more frequently. Um, each of the welders are tested, and uh, we will pull two um, seam tests for peel and two for shear. Those seam tests are tested. If the seam test fails, then the welder will be adjusted, and the process will be re repeated. Um, results are all documented. Um, these documents can be supplied at the time of shipment, um, so that when you go out to the field, you know that the fab, um, the fab welds are already good welds and you don't have to worry about retesting those again. Tanya, I think we're losing on your Wi-Fi. Did you, did you hear me? No, not the last part. Um, I'll go back to where the scene fails, adjustments to welders are made, um, the process is repeated. Um, all results are tested, um, all results are recorded, and those documents can be supplied at the time of shipment. So that way when the material gets out into the field, you know that everything's been tested as far as the fab seams go, and um, the only thing you need to really worry about are your field seams. Okay. So next, I want to turn to Ryan Camp, and Ryan's going to discuss field CQC. Hey Tim, thanks thanks for having us all today. Um, obviously, we're, we're an installer, you know. So I think at the, the beginning, um, you know, Tim pointed out something that I hope is a takeaway for everybody. You know, is who's doing quality control, who's doing quality assurance. Because um, for a good part of my my career in installation, everybody just lumped, you know, they just said, "Oh, you're QAQC guy, you're QAQC guy, you're QAQC guy," and we don't do quality assurance. We do quality control. Um, so I think that's an important takeaway. Normally a third party or, or someone that's representing the owner does the, the actual quality assurance. Um, so I just wanted to point out some commonly used, and there's definitely more than this, but these are kind of some mainline uh, installation equipment and seaming equipment that you'll see out in the field. Um, one is a heat gun um, in the polyethylene world, unreinforced, it's used just for tacking. Um, but in a lot of the flexible world, um, which we're, we're focusing on today, um, the heat gun can be used for, for actual patching. Um, it's your actual structural weld. Um, second, you have your extrusion welder. Um, it obviously extrude, it, it extrudes through the barrel. Um, welding rod made of the same plastic uh, that you're welding. Uh, so that can be used on a number of different plastics, typically for repairs, uh, boots, penetrations, those kind of things. Um, third would be your, your hot wedge welder, um, also called a fusion welder. Um, that's that's going to be used to make all your production seams, and it actually has a hot wedge, hence the name. 
uh, that heats the sheets together and then rollers behind it that press the material together. Um, that can be a solid weld and that can also be a dual track split weld. Um, the final uh, seaming equipment is the hot air welder. So same concept as the hot wedge. It just uses hot air in lieu of a hot shoe. So those are going to be your, 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 main, your main seaming items. Next slide, Tim. So testing equipment, um, manometer sets, you know, some people call them air test sets. Um, they're also called manometer, I guess is the formal name. Uh, that's how you're gonna test uh, dual track welds. You know, you're gonna insert that needle uh, into the channel that the dual track welder creates, seal each end, inflate the seam area, and check for continuity. Uh, next is air lance. So that's gonna be used for single welds, uh, single track welds, such as the, the heat gun uh, that creates patches uh, can be tested via, via air lance and any kind of uh, solid weld will be tested with air lance. Um, third is your uh, vacuum tester used typically on repairs, apply a soapy solution to the patch, um, has a gasket on the bottom of it, you engage a vacuum motor, it sucks down to the liner. Um, and if there's a hole in the seam area, you can see it through that clear plate that Tim's highlighting and, and it bubbles up because it's pulling air from underneath the, uh, the geomembrane. Next is your spark tester. Um, that's used for typically used in in areas that you can't get an air lance, you can't get a vacuum box, uh, such as boots, um, penetrate, you know, penetrations, uh, corners, just areas of odd geometry. Uh, you put a conductive medium, you know, in your weld and then spark test, and if it arcs to it, um, you, you need to repair it. Um, next is your tensiometer used for destructively testing. Um, seams, field trial seams, you know, to check for peel and shear values and locus of break. And finally is your bone cutter, also known as a coupon cutter. Uh, it just cuts, typically cuts a one inch sample. It has a typical bone cutter as a one inch die, um, which allows you to get your pounds per inch when you pull your values on your tensiometer. So next slide, Tim. So examples of destructive testing is field trial seam. That happens before welding. Same process Tanya described. Um, you weld a sample of the membrane that you're gonna be welding that day. You destructively test it to make sure it meets peel and shear values, uh, as well as the proper uh, break code. Um, seam end bones is something that happens during welding. Um, so it's at the end of the seam, technicians should be cutting a small sample of their weld and actually destructively pulling it apart uh, to make sure you're getting proper, proper break code. And then finally, field destructive um, testing. Obviously, CQA is going to send samples to the lab, but we're also going to, as an installer, take a sample of that material, and we're going to destructively test in the field before it goes to the lab to make sure that, that everything is good before we send it to the lab. And if not, we can correct it in the field prior to going to the lab. So final slide, Tim. Non-destructive testing. And once again, there, there are some other uh, blunt probe uh, uh, testing methods. But main, you know, for the purposes today, I just want to focus on the main, and that's the air channel testing for drill, dual track welds, uh, air lance, which is going to be used on, on single track welds and patches, vacuum box testing, which is going to be used on patching, and then spark testing, like I said, so we're on patches, boots, corners, areas of odd geometry that you can't get anything else to test. So thank you, Tim. Thank you, Ryan. So now that Tanya and Ryan just discussed CQC or construction quality control. Now I'd like to turn to construction quality assurance, which is consultant slash owner controlled. A MQA as well as a CQA plan is developed by the consultant slash owner. And they're trying to check the conformity with the design slash plans and spec and conformance with permits and regulations. So we have two speakers here. Shannon Goodrich is going to talk about the consultant slash owner CQA and Brian Queen afterwards will talk about regulatory compliance. So Shannon, uh, thanks for joining us and here's your first slide. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me. Uh, so construction quality assurance, I'm um, typically hired by the owner or the design engineer to be their eyes and ears in the field to ensure compliance with the technical specifications in the drawings. <clears throat> so essentially at the 
we will work very closely with the installers during their quality control procedures to ensure and verify that they're actually doing the testing and the testing is in compliance. Uh, we also follow up on quality assurance and sometimes doing our own testing as well in the field, just doubling up on what the contractor has done. So typical lining, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the areas that uh, we always focus on is where are you gonna have potential leaks? Where are the critical attachments? So here, here's an anaerobic digester. Uh, we have our closure spools, which are attachments to the wall and the geomembrane itself. So one important thing is when the designers are designing these closure spool flange pieces, they need to be flat faced flange. They need to butt up against the liner. They can't have any recesses. They have to be flat in order to get your compression to your liner. Down at the bottom, you'll see the studs where we poke the liner. You have to pre-punch those holes. Ideally, it should be slightly smaller than the diameter of the stud and use a lot of care when you're, when you're actually punching the liner through the studs. So you can see there's a lot of potential leaks here. That's why the design of these closure spools and pipe penetrations are very important, that you have the section with your flat face flange. I see the flanges come out all the time and they're not flat faced. Therefore, they're not going to hold water. They're going to leak like a sieve. Uh, next slide, Tim. Okay. Here's another a good example of, a, uh, of an attachment. This is the mechanical system. This is, could be a structural attachment as well. So again, you need to make sure that your liner's just not slapped over the studs and hammered down. They need to be pre-punched. They need to be very tight around that anchor bolt. And then uh, you'll see over on the right-hand side, uh, that's a completed mechanical attachment. It's got the, uh, it's got the uh, butyl tape underneath it. It's got the EPDM gasket. Um, it's, the anchor bar is designed so it has a dome on it. So when your cover comes down on it, it won't hit the stud and create any imperfections or punctures. Next slide, Tim. Okay. Um, another very important thing is your, your liner system is only as good as your foundation, correct? Um, you would be amazed at how often we see poor, poorly prepared subgrade surfaces. And the Earthworks contractor is expecting the installer to take the responsibility to place the geomembrane liner on a rotten surface. So we're very particular about our technical specifications on the final prepared subgrade. There can't be any rocks, there can't be any desiccation cracks. It needs to be watered consistently to keep your moisture control so you don't lose your civil part of that. And as well, it needs to be smooth drum rolled in order to put your geomembrane down. So again, your foundation, that's where it starts. Next slide, Tim. Yep. So this is, a, uh, this is a typical floating cover for a potable water system. Uh, you can see how large it is. Uh, we built it in the dry, we float it up, we put all of our appurtenances and our pumps and our floats on. So you can imagine if this gets a heavy rain on it, as well as all of the appurtenances and equipment and devices that we have on top of a tension floating cover, how much weight these things really need to withstand in order for operators to be walking on it, the engineers to be out there inspecting it. It's quite impressive what we can do with these tension floating covers. I think we could probably drive a car across it, but I don't want to try that. <laughs> So yeah, we uh, third party uh, CQA inspection and testing. Uh, it's a function of the owner engineering. Um, we're very heavily involved. The very beginning during spec writing, um, I like to get involved early in order to do some valued engineering perhaps, um, make sure that the specifications uh, are constructible. Um, I just had a project where I was reviewing pre-planned set uh, pre-bid set of plans, and it was specified that they wanted this, the, the contractor to 100% conductively spark test a non-conductive geomembrane. So those are the type of things that we kind of shake out before these things even hit the street. I'm scratching my head going, how do I spark test a non-conductive geomembrane? So 
uh, those are those are things that we like to do. And uh, at the end of the project, uh, we'll provide the final certification. Uh, we review and buy off on all the contractors' quality control forms. Um, we write the final report and we submit it to Brian's group, who ultimately has to review it and approve it and make sure it goes into operation. Thank you. Okay. Um, Shannon, did you, uh, I, I have two more slides for you, I think. Yeah, yeah, so here's some uh, standard testing that uh, Ryan was talking about. Uh, we do probe tests, um, and then we follow it up with air tests, and then you'll you'll often see the CQA inspector right down there with his own probe um, right behind them. So, you know, we're fairly confident by the end of these projects that uh, things have been double tested, uh, the paperwork is in order, uh, the project is meeting the design intent. Next slide. Yep. Now here's another good example. Uh, show up on a project. Uh, the contractor's pulling out these rolls of geocomposite, and he's dragging them up about uh, two miles down the road on an aggregate surface. So you can see the damage that was done to that roll. So that's, you know, that's some of the things that we see on the site, and uh, it's almost like being a construction cop. Uh, you know, we put out our badge and we say, sorry, you cannot do that. Uh, you know, we recommend you do it this way. Um, over on the right, uh, pre-welds, uh, we always get out there and we practice, you know, uh, hopefully a day before we start to install. And uh, we, you know, adjust all the settings on the equipment. Um, we've run our trial tests. We know the seam integrity is there. We're ready for production welding. Uh, down at the bottom, uh, something I see typically, uh, you know, the contractor will say, okay, we're ready for some inspection. So we'll come up and we'll probe it and got some loose ends. Uh, we'll mark that, document it, uh, have the contractor come back and repair it, follow up with additional testing. So it's a series of, of testing and check and balances. Because the last thing we want to do is prepare our final report, send it to the regulatory compliance agency, and then have them reject the report. Your landfill can't go into operation, your basin can't go into operation, your mine can't be closed. You know, so there's a lot riding on these reports. Great, Shannon. Thank, thank you. And our last introduction speaker is Brian Queen of the Ohio EPA, and Brian's going to talk about the regulatory piece and reviewing and accepting these CQA reports that Shannon just mentioned. So Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tim. I thought since we have people from all over the world on this training, I'd go ahead and give you an idea of what we do in Ohio, which is very similar to lots of other states. Uh, typically everything begins with regulatory requirements, uh, stating the minimums, what quality control and quality assurance are expected. Then uh, an authorizing document, a permit is submitted, and that goes into a lot more detail of what kind of expectations there needs to be in the quality control and quality assurance. For example, regulations might require 100% non-destructive seam testing, but they wouldn't require something like what percent carbon black you would need, but the permit probably would tell you what percent carbon black you'd need. Then the liner system would be constructed, uh, CQC, Q CQA would be doing their watch over of the site and the state regulators would be there making sure that everything complies with the permit and the regulations. Then the quality assurance submits a certification and then it's approved by the state agency. On rare occasions, things will be found in those certifications that aren't acceptable. Maybe there's a back and forth, maybe there's a, just a denial of the certification, but obviously nobody wants a certification to be denied. Millions of dollars have been spent on this liner system and we want it to be correct. So I encourage our state regulators to go out and make sure that things are done well to begin with. And I definitely encourage all the states to make sure that you get out there and you watch what's going on in the field and make sure everything's done the way it should be. Okay, next slide. Here's a pretty typical operation. You can see a well-prepared clay surface in the background and then covered with a GCL. 
and you can see the liner system being placed by the lining crew there in the background. But what we're talking about today is what's going on here in the foreground. We have see the quality control personnel there writing on the liner system, taking notes of the passing air channel test that he just performed. And then quality assurance is there making sure that quality control did what they were supposed to. And us as the regulator, who's the person behind the camera, is making sure that both of those people are doing what they're required to do. And if we find that they're not doing what they're required to do, we typically talk to them and discuss how they could do it better. And if that doesn't work, then we talk to the two people in the background that represent the owner and they make sure that it, it happens correctly because they know that uh, they're not going to be able to use this liner system if it's not done correctly in the first place. Okay, Tim, I think we're ready for questions, if you are. Okay, great. So everybody, I'll leave this slide on the screen. Please submit your questions uh, in the question box. We already have many questions with a variety of topics. So um, panelists, we're going to bounce around quite a bit here. So oh, here we go. Um, when using butyl tape, are you recommending its use only at bolt holes or the entire area under the gasket batten bar? And Shannon, I think you opened up that discussion. So let's start with you. Uh, really depends on the type of attachment. If it's a non-structural, um, you could put it over the stud itself, like a two by two or three by three square, pop it over the bolt, and then put your gasket on. Um, if it's an underwater seal to structure, yeah, I recommend butyl tape throughout the whole thing underneath okay. the mechanical attachment, yeah. Okay, um, again, we're gonna bounce around quite a bit. What additional steps shall be taken for cold weather seaming? And also what is a typical failure rate for destructive testing on a typical project? So let's separate those. Let's do cold weather first and then look at uh, failure rates. So um, Ryan, why, Ryan Camp, why don't you start? And then Tanya, if, if jump in. Yeah, I mean, from a cold weather seaming standpoint, you know, that typically, you know, some sects are 40 degrees. Some specifications are 32 degrees, but those are kind of when they kick in. Um, and basically everything is just doubled. You know, the frequency of your destructive testing is doubled. The frequency of your field trial seams in the morning is doubled. So instead of every four hours, you're doing them every two hours, um, you know, to just verify because you get temperature fluctuations and you really want to make sure that, that you have good, you know, your good setup before you start welding. Um, and then, like I said, just, you know, basically everything is, is, is doubled. Okay. Um, Tanya, do I can you address the I can address the failure rate, or at least the state's perspective on it. Uh, we find that qualified installers or really experienced installers have a failure rate of about one to two percent, and the inexperienced installers that haven't put down much membrane have more like a thirty to forty percent failure rate. So in Ohio, our new regulations actually require a lot of experience from the installers, so we get more of the one to 2% failure rate. Great. Um, Tanya, do you want to weigh in on either of those before I move on? No, I think actually the guys did a, a really nice job. Okay, great. Okay, here we go. Um, what advantage would a, a hot air fusion welder have over a hot wedge fusion welder? And Ryan Camp, I think you talked about this. Yeah, I mean, so we use, we install, you know, unreinforced polyethylene. We also install all the flexibles, PVCs, polypropylenes, reinforced polypropylenes, XR3, XR5, um, and, and so on. Um, so the, the hot wedge, you know, the hot air can be better for, you know, thinner, more flexible materials, um, where a hot wedge, you know, sometimes can, you know, it's too much time, too much heat on the plastic. Um, so when it goes to the nip rollers in the back, you know, to be basically squished together for lack of a better term, um, it's too hot and you can have excessive burnouts. Um, so that's typically, you know, the hot wedge is, is a pretty versatile, you know, machine. Um, but it's, it does have some limitations when you get into the scrim reinforced or thinner material. So that's where we would kind of shift over to the, the hot air welder. Okay. 
Anybody else want to weigh in on welders? Okay, uh, next question. Uh, yeah, I will quickly. Um, so typically, Hey, Shannon, did we lose Breaking up, Tim. Shannon did, okay. Shannon will come. We'll come uh, back. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, now we can. Can you hear you? Oh. Yeah, can you hear me okay, Tim? Yes. So uh, for, for production welds, long production welds, uh, you know, we always like to use the, the wedge, solid or split. Um, so when you're dealing a lot with the with the reinforced products, you've got you know lots of patches. Um, um, you're patching uh, you know your T your T seams. Um, it's it's typically done by hand in hot air uh, for your patching and your small repairs. You you certainly wouldn't want to you know back in the day we did, but uh, you know today if uh, you know if it's over like four or five six feet long, you're you're typically gonna put a wedge on it. Okay. Um any special requirements when using the spark tester if you are not using a conductive liner? <laughs> Shannon, I think you talked about that if you're still with us. Yeah, um, so holiday testing. Um, yeah, you need to put uh, you need to put your copper um, underneath your heat tack. And you know where you place that is it's got to be very specific in order to get a good integrity test. Okay, so Shannon, give give the viewers an idea where does that copper wire basically right have to be yeah. placed? So it, sorry about that. So yeah, uh, if um, you know, so a typical boot penetration, uh, you would uh, you know you do all your fit up. Um, with your lyster uh, and strictly heat at that point, um, but you have to you have to install your copper, you know, just slightly um, inside the leading edge of your patch or your boot, enough where where you want to make sure that your extrudate on your extrusion gun is going to 100% cover uh, that weld zone and cover that copper wire. And if it doesn't, you run the holiday test, you get the spark, uh, you mark it, and then you can repair it and retest it. Okay. Um, the next question is somewhat loaded, and, and I don't know if we want to mention uh, manufacturers, but I'll read it. Is one of the fusion welders more reliable than the other? The hot wedge machine seems to be more common in the field. So maybe, uh, Brian, uh, sorry, Ryan, can't you, you talked about the fusion welders? Just maybe say something about the properties of the machine you're looking for, instead of like brand names, models. Yeah, I'll try to steer clear of brand names. <laughs> um, but I, I will say, you know, any, you know, there, there's a couple major companies that I think mo most people uh, know who they are. Um, we use both of them. You know, we we use them for for different reasons. Um, you know, like we use the hot wedge predominantly on, on polyethylene, uh, PVC, polypropylene, all your production seeming. Um, you know, we use one certain type of welder. Um, it, it's a little he heavier, um, so it's better for thicker materials. So when we get into 8,800 mil materials, we might shift to that material, or excuse me, to that welder. Um, when we're welding more common thicknesses, you know, your, your 40, 45 mil, 60 mil uh, materials, um, we're using a, 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 another very commonly used welder, uh, and they're both very reliable. You know, they last a long time, and they, and they work really well. And once again, like on the, the hot air welders, you know, the only times generally we switch over to those is if we're dealing with a... Um, a very and, and that's a that's a, a a fusion welder you know it's automated it's not the handheld um but it just uses hot air in lieu of a hot wedge and we'll use those like i said on thin mill materials or reinforced materials where you just don't have a lot of plastic to work with you don't have a lot of time to work with so um you know they can be problematic with a wedge because the wedge is, is is longer you know you get more dwell time when that plastic's going over that wedge 
um, can get excessive heat. And then when it comes through to the nip rollers in the back of the machine, then you can have a burnout. You know, so the, the hot air machine, the, 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 the tip of that is, is smaller. Um, so you have just more concentrated air in a smaller zone. Um, so it works really well. Reinforced materials where you have basically a thin skin of plastic over top of a scrim or reinforcement um, or a really flexible material that's thinner that we just don't have a lot of time to work with out in the field. Okay. Um, we're getting a lot of questions, uh, so I'm, I'm just going to keep rolling here. What is a reasonable time frame between factory seaming and third-party test results? The same question for time frame between field seaming and third-party destruct test results. So maybe Shannon, and why don't you start with that? Yeah. So, so in the factory, uh, the shop fabricated seams. You know, you never want to send something to the job site and, until you have your third-party conformance that the, all the seams have passed. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't wait till you have 40 destructs in the shop. You know, I maybe eight to 10 destructs, send them out, get the results back within 24 hours. Um, in the field, the same way, uh, you know, it depends on if you, you know, are you being pressured by the general contractor to put a soil layer on top of it? Um, in which case, you know, you have to work with the installer to on your sequencing, you know, to get a certain amount of square footage bought off on so they can come and put uh, geotextile down in the soil cover, et cetera. So, you know, again, we don't like to get uh, extended very far. Um, you know, I, I will send out one destruct if I have to, um, but, uh, you know, never more than 10 because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep them going because I want the results back quickly because we're always under pressure to move forward you know, for production. Uh, but I'm getting my results back within 24 hours, which is very handy. Right. Anybody else on time frames? Good. Yeah, in the plant, basically what we do is is uh, if it's a multi-truck project, um, I will send the samples out once we have one truck fabricated. And uh, that way, once the samples come back, you can ship that truck while you're making the next truck. Right. Okay, next question. Uh, and this one's right straight to Brian Queen. My question is for Brian. How often does the regulator visit the site during construction? Weekly, monthly, or just a, at certain key stages during the project? I would imagine it is quite a large team to manage multiple sites at the same time. So Brian, why don't you tackle that one? So we do have multiple engineers throughout the state. Typically they have three to five landfills and only one or two of them are constructing a year. So we require our staff to go out once per construction event. So like once per soil, once through per plastic, so forth and so on. But honestly, we really encourage people to go out there at least once a week. And if you see something that's not pristine out there or going the, quite the way, way it should be, you need to go out there more often than once a week. But we encourage our staff to go out there once a week. Great. Um, can, I, can I follow up on that real quick? Please, please go ahead. Um, so as the as a certifying engineer, I I I really pushed for more more um, site visits, more interaction with the regulatory agencies. Um, get the design engineer out there uh, biweekly. If you can get the regulatory guys out there biweekly, because we work hand in hand. Um, I need to gain their trust and their faith. They need to gain that in me as well as the resident engineer. Um, it, it, and at the end of the day, when you submit the final report, which could be two volumes, you know, six inches deep with paperwork, there's no surprises. You know, they've been there. It's tangible. They've seen it. Um, they know the daily reports. They know the content um, in the reporting. Uh, so it just really helps to streamline the certification process, I believe. Yep, good point. Um, next, the design engineer's role and interaction with CQA personnel can vary. Interested in the panelists' opinion about the design engineer's role during construction. So, uh, boy, how do we want to start this one? Um, why don't we Why don't we go with Brian Queen and then Shannon? And Ryan and Tanya, if you can jump in. 
so the question was, how how is the design engineer involved with the QAQC portion? Yes, CQA personnel, yes. Uh, that's really up to the owner. Uh, sometimes, you know, that person is no longer in the picture and everyone's got to figure out what they meant and then proceed forward. So uh, it's really up to the owner how the design engineer is involved after the project. Uh, in Ohio, you get a permit and it basically lasts forever. So we could be dealing with a design engineer that's no longer in business or even alive anymore. So uh, everything's on paper and we follow the, what's on the paperwork. And if that doesn't work, we let people submit alterations to change it. Okay, Shannon? Yeah, it varies. Um, for me, it varies based on sector. Like in the water world, uh, I tend to have a lot more involvement with the design engineers almost on a daily basis, if not a every other day basis. Um, the designs tend to be a little more challenging um, when you're getting into the tension floating covers and the floats and the uh, pumps, et cetera. Um, so I personally, um, again, I usually work for the engineer. So I have direct access. Uh, if I have an interpretation issue, I pick up the phone, call him and get the answer and then get it to the field because we can't slow down Ryan and his group. Uh, so it's nice for the CQA to have a direct link open door policy with the design engineers. And then I've been on some projects where there's no involvement at all, um, just nothing. And if you have an RFI, you know, you could be waiting weeks for the answer. So it could be very frustrating. Um, I think everybody likes the involvement uh, to be more over less, yeah. Okay, Any anyone else? Okay, next one is kind of a loaded question. Uh, what is the panel, panel's opinion on wrinkles in an HDPE geo membrane for a tailings dam constructed in the tropical region? And I realize most of you are may not be working in a tropical region, but we have viewers all over the world. So uh, I know Ohio EPA is looking at wrinkles. So Brian Queen, why don't you start and we'll go around. Yeah, I have a two hour presentation on wrinkles. So let me try to <laughs> boil that down to. <laughs> okay, so if you have a wrinkle and you cover that wrinkle up with gravel or any material and you place 100 feet of waste on top of it, that wrinkle is still gonna be there 10 years later. So wrinkles never go away. So any wrinkle with a hole on it that entire surface area underneath that wrinkle gets filled up with liquid, with leachate, probably contaminated liquid, and then it drains just like it was sitting on top of the soil through the area underneath that wrinkle. So you have significant, significant more leakage through a hole on the wrinkle. Uh, I definitely encourage people to control wrinkles while they're placing the cover materials the best they can. Ohio has a specification that wrinkles can't be higher than four inches. Uh, Germany has a two inch spec. But uh, typically what we expect is that when you're placing your gravel over the top of your geomembrane, you have laborers right there next to the dozer, flattening out wrinkles and keeping them as small as possible. Uh, obviously, and you never ever want to have a wrinkle flop over and, and get creased. So keep them as small as you can, keep them as short as you can, and hope you don't have a hole in the wrinkle. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, I would recommend uh, designing with a white geomembrane. It really helps. That's true. Uh, wrinkles are always the biggest headache on the project. Um, that's why I like going with the reinforced products because you don't get a lot of wrinkles in those, right. um, either the CSP or the RPP, et cetera. Um, I'm finding with the uh, the manufactured white geomembranes, 60, 80 mil, the wrinkles are very manageable. Um, if you're using the black sheet HDPE, that stuff will grow like crazy, and the wrinkles grow as you're dispersing and pushing your soil. So you really have to have a plan on how to manage that wrinkle. A lot of times we end up cutting them out. 
and then just putting an extrusion patch on them. Um, it's time consuming, it slows everything down. Uh, and again, it can be avoided if you design it properly. Right. Yeah, I would ask from an installer's perspective, making sure that it, the, the definition of a wrinkle, you know, um, what is a wrinkle? So I like what Brian said, hey, four inches, uh, anything that will lay over itself, like those kind of things, you know, because uh, a wrinkle can be very interpretive and plastics thermally expand and contract, you know, at, at different, yeah, certainly the reinforced products significantly less than unreinforced polyethylene. But I mean, I've had inspectors come out in the past and that, that don't have a lot of plastic experience, you know, and they see this wrinkled up, you know, it's 105 degrees in Alabama and you're doing a 60 mil cell. I, I mean, it, 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 you know, looks like an elephant's behind, you know, during the day. And then at the end of the shift, it's, it's, it's as tight as a drum and beautiful, you know? So if we were to start, you know, cutting wrinkles out in the middle of the day by his definition, which is just thermal, you know, thermally expansion, you know, expanded material. So having a definition of, you know, when you identify wrinkles and, you know, is it during cover? Is it during the morning? Uh, and what is that size? You know, they lay over themselves. I think that's really important. So, everybody knows what the rules of the game are yeah. yeah in ohio in the upper 80s on a sunny day if you are lifting your dozer blade at the end of your gravel push if you have two laborers you know basically at the edge of the dozer blade controlling wrinkles and you're pushing towards the non-anchor trench filled edge of your liner system you can control your wrinkles 105 i'm not sure about we don't get that here so okay Great, so this has generated many more questions on wrinkles, and I don't want to spend all the rest of our time on wrinkles, but um, uh, on the top, uh, what is the reason behind white geomembranes encountering less wrinkles in comparison with black geomembranes? And I think Shannon, you brought that up, so why don't you hit that? Yeah, I just, uh, I have always understand that the, uh, the white liner is more reflective, um, therefore it won't uh, um, absorb and grow as much. Right. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit. On the topic of welding, whether for production or patches, what maximum temperature of geomembrane is, recommend, is recommended beyond which welding should not continue? I mean, most specifications are 104. Um, yeah, that's that's typically your your upper range. Um, so something you do have to pay attention to. Hey, once again, defining the rules of the game. Uh, 104 is that is that sheet temperature or ambient temperature? You know, because um, your temperature can be drastically different than your ambient temperature. So just really understanding that i think is important and defining it you know in, in that like shannon does a, a you know a pre a pre-bid uh spec review you know those are great things to define so there's no misinterpretation yeah it's it's where you measure where you measure the liner uh, what 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 time of the day it is um you know uh ryan will will be able to relate to this you take a state like 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 Idaho, you know, 40 degrees in the morning, almost 100 in the afternoon. So that material is going through all sorts of thermal expansion and contraction, expansion and contraction. Uh, it's there's some states that are a lot harder to install in than others. <laughs> yeah. So can we come up with a temperature for our listeners of sheet temperatures at which you should not weld sheet temp geomembrane temperature? Well, I always I always shut it down at 104, 105. 104. Okay, great. Okay, going on. Uh, can a pin can pinhole size holes or T intersections be repaired by running an extrusion bead, or should they be patched? It's a good question. Um, I prefer patching. I don't like just to extrude the T's. Although I mean, it's been done for you know, 80 years, that's, that's how it was done. Um, I have some engineers that will let you just extrude the T's as long as you're putting pressure, poking down on all three sides of that T's to seal any leak holes. Um, 
but if you're doing uh, if you're doing a primary liner system, uh, I prefer the full-on patch and extrusion weld. Okay. Anybody else? So in Ohio, we require patches on our tees, and we require a patch on a, a hole that you actually can see. If it's just a a small gouge, then a, just a bead on top of that is fine. Okay. Um, here's a question related to slide number 22, which I believe is one of Shannon's. Uh, let me get back there. Oh, sorry. 22, uh, Shannon. Okay. On slide 22, oh, the trial weld appears to be performed with a geomembrane lying on a piece of wood. Would this be standard practice versus performing the trial weld on subgrade surface? Right, right here, uh, Shannon. Yeah, yeah. So in this particular case, this is a couple of days before axle insulation. Um, so the contractor was just doing some pre-settings, testing his equipment, material operator combinations. Um, he didn't want to run that trial on the asphalt right there because it was kind of hot. Uh, so that's why we have that wood underneath there. But typically your, your trial welds should be in the same condition as your field welding. Should right. be very little difference, if any. Okay. Um, oh, this is loaded. How many destructive tests do you require per meter length of seam? <laughs> okay. Uh, why don't we just go around here? Uh, that's interesting. Go ahead. Uh, so um, let's see who started. Uh, Tanya, why don't you start in the factory? Then we'll go to the field with Ryan and Shannon and Brian. So in the in the plant, we don't do destructs. Everything that we do is non-destructive unless the spec calls for it. If the spec calls for it, then the spec is going to um, list exactly what the parameters are and how often you need to do the destructs. So it's a little different in the plant. You know, it'll go directly off the spec. Okay. Brian? We typically see one test per 500 feet, you know, per machine and operator. Um, once again, that's a, that's a bit loaded. That destructive test and destructive test frequency. I mean, that's probably a whole other webinar in itself. So I'll just say one per 500 feet per welder uh, right. per machine. Right. Okay, Shannon and then Brian. Yeah, so I'm used to 500 uh, lineal feet per machine welder combination. Um, and then, of course, if you're on a big job and you've got history of good performance, you need to reward that performance by backing off a little bit on the destructs. Um, and ASTM is very clear on how to do that. Uh, I don't know, it's called it. Um, I can't remember exact terminology of that paper, but you know, based on performance, you can go to uh, 700 and then 800 and then maybe even to 1,000. Okay, Brian, anything? All right, so 500 feet, if you have any old contractor out there doing the work, if you have a experienced contractor with a lot of material underneath their belt, uh, the area where the seam is is clean and a few other criteria will let you go out to 1,000. So it all depends on who you, who's doing the welding. Okay, good. Um, there is MQA and MQC and CQA and CQC. Is there any kind of in-service QA and QC? I guess after the facility goes into service. Anybody jump in? Yeah, I'll jump on that real quick. So on the floating cover side of uh, the sectors, um, you know, a lot of times the will get called back um a year later during that first cover cleaning uh where we're very hands-on right down there finding any imperfections or pinholes uh, and then follow up with the contractor on the necessary repairs uh so yeah we could do a little um um quality assurance after year one during cover cleanings uh, not so much on the landfills or the basins um, but on the floating covers yeah okay anybody else Okay, this goes. This is a follow-up question for the design engineer question. Scary thought that the design engineer may no longer be involved with the project. Where does liability then lie? Who 
lie, who ensures design intent and performance then? So who was talking about the design engineer? I can speak to that. Well, go ahead, Brian. Um, typically, when the design engineer is no longer involved, the owner's engineer will take over that role, and they'll either hire a, a new consultant to kind of fill that void, or they'll rely on the professional engineer for the quality assurance firm to, to do that job. But it's usually a combination of qualified people that kind of fill that void after the design engineer isn't around anymore. Anybody else? Okay, so we have we have some viewers in South Africa and, and they are a little concerned about the 104 degree Fahrenheit that was mentioned. We have yeah. geomembranes that reach 70 degrees Celsius, which round numbers, if you multiply two, that's probably around 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So 104 Fahrenheit is very low. That's actually about our ambient temperature in sometimes. Any suggestions of how to handle hotter temperatures? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've done some work over in uh, in Africa and other places where it's just extremely hot and humid. Uh, you just have to be a lot more diligent on your on your pre-qualification testing, uh, testing during installations. Um, like Ryan said, you know, you may have to double up. You have to do more trials. You do more destructs. Um, you know, you, you just spend a lot more time um, evaluating those seams in that weather condition. It can be done. We do it all the time. Um, but luckily here in the States, we really don't have to deal with such uh, excessive heat. Okay. Yeah, in our experience, we normally see 104 as an ambient temperature requirement for specification, but they don't list anything as far as sheet temperature. Um, and we're just trying to highlight earlier that, you know, the sheet temperature is probably, I mean, I think it is more important than the ambient temperature. I mean, the two are related. Um, but, you know, I think that 104 translates to exactly about that 140 sheet temperature. And just like Shannon said, you know, um, the hotter things are, the colder things are, um, the more complicated they are. Um, you're not in that kind of that sweet spot of temperature. And you do, you know, you, you might just have to do, you know, trial welds every two hours instead of every four hours and, you know, double your destruct frequency unless, you know, unless they can prove that um, they have a long track record, you know, on the project of successful destructs. I'm not a proponent of excessive destruct testing, you know, replacing good fusion welds with extrusion welds, um, you know, but if it's, and so I think if the installer can prove out that they're doing a good job at those temperatures, um, then yeah, like Shannon said earlier, reward them and, and you know and reduce the destruct frequency maybe to normal, um, but keep up the the, the field trial seam because uh, that's not impacting the actual finished product. Right. Okay. Anybody else? I just like to say Ryan hit it right on the money. That's exactly what I would have said too. Perfect. Okay. So obviously in the summertime, uh, people are concerned about temperature. So we've got more even more questions. Um, to what temperatures can they test seams and patches? For example, um, a dual track weld or a either extrusion or a hot air patch. Is there any limit on temperatures for those testing? Not, not that I know of. Um, I, you know, when it's too cold, you know, you, you might, instead of using water that freezes, you know, if you're doing box testing, you know, you might need to use some biodegradable windshield washer fluid or something that won't freeze up on you. Um, but as far as on the, the hot side of things, I mean, not that I know of, um, there is like dual tracking, you know, dual track testing of PVC. Um, if you look at the ASTM standard, you know, it, it the length of test and the amount of pressure depends on the, the ambient and sheet temperature. You know, so there might be some things you have to pay attention to there, but I don't think there's anything that would actually stop you from doing those tests. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, I mean, we may shut down the production welding due to heat, but uh, that's when they usually drop back and start doing uh, uh, some quality control work. Okay, 
All right, we're right at one o'clock. Uh, we did not get through everybody's questions. I'm sorry, but we will have a follow-up podcast and we will get through all the questions that have come in through the webinar and that you can submit after the webinar via the follow-up survey. If you would like to contact our speakers directly, their contact information is on the screen, Brian, Shannon, Tanya, and Ryan. And if you want to contact me or Jennifer Miller, our contact information is there. Our next webinar is Leachate Collection Systems Design Specification and Construction with Bob Mackey on August 12th, 2020 at noon central time. So I hope you'll join us then. You can get all of the webinars from the FGI website by going under the resource tab and they are listed by year. And our website is fabricatedgeomembrane.com. I'd like to thank the two webinar sponsors today, Chesapeake Containment Systems and Titan Environmental. Thank you so much for participating and sponsoring today's panel discussion. So I'd like to thank today's panelists, Brian Queen, Shannon Goodrich, Tanya Switalski, and Ryan Camp for their excellent responses to a really wide range of questions today. So, Thank you very much, panelists. And we will be scheduling a follow-up podcast to handle all the questions that we did not get to. Thanks for having us. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thanks.